Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you quiet our hearts. We're so used to speaking, and then we're so used to listening to that which isn't important. But right now, we ask that you quiet our hearts and our foolish desires so that we might hear your word, true, and we find ourselves changed. Lord, I pray that you give me the ability to speak the word clearly right now, boldly and powerfully, not because I am bold and not because I am powerful. Lord, you know my sins, and you know how inadequate I am for this task. And yet, the one hope that I have and that my brothers and sisters have is your Holy Spirit working in us, illuminating our eyes to what is true, giving us ears to hear and eyes that see. And so, Lord, as one church, we desire to see and to seek Christ our Lord. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John asked me to keep today's message positive and to be encouraging. And so I thought, all right, I can do that. So today's sermon title, kept it as light as I could, is Everyday Murderers. You're welcome. Everyday Murderers. And where am I going with this? The text for today comes to us from the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You'll also find it on the back of the outline. And Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I will tell you that anyone who is angry will, with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May God bless this reading of his word. We are still in that part of the Gospel of Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is often called the best sermon ever preached. And the Sermon on the Mount is about ultimate things. It's not just about, okay, what's important, but what is most important. And as we saw with the Beatitudes, with those uh, series of lines, sentences, that started with, blessed be, or blessed are those, like blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn. 
You know, these things were not just ultimately about what we were supposed to do, trying to make super people out of us, saying, Jesus saying, this is your true potential. Let me help you unlock it. No. The Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount is about ultimate things and the ultimate person who is Jesus Christ. He is the one of whom the Beatitudes were speaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Who was the true peacemaker? Well, you just read that, or you heard it read in the scripture reading from Ephesians. Jesus is the one, in his body and in his blood. He was the true peacemaker, reconciling God to man. And he is the true Son of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Who is the one who mourned like no one else in all the universe, in all history? Jesus Christ. Mourning for that hell on the cross that he endured for our sake. That brief and yet to Jesus Christ. Staggering separation that he had in that time between himself and his Father in heaven. And so even this, where we are getting to, and now what we are getting to actually is, and theologians come up with all sorts of ways to just kind of classify things. It's really just to be helpful to us, to categorize, all right, where are we in the Bible? And we are beginning the first of six antitheses. Antitheses, what is that? Well, you know what a thesis right, is, right? A thesis is just some statement that you're making. It's some declaration that you're saying. An antithesis is you being in opposition to someone's statement or declaration. And Jesus begins here the first of six antitheses. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor John preached that Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament truths, did he? The Old Testament had lots of demands. All right, the Ten Commandments were ten of about 600 and so commandments that God's people in the Old Testament were called to keep. All sorts of dietary laws, all sorts of ceremonial and ritual laws, all sorts of laws as a country. And Jesus Christ said that he came not to abolish them, but, what was the word? To fulfill them. That he, in his life, in his work, in his death and resurrection, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. And so in this antithesis, Jesus is saying, well, the first part is going to be very familiar. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Where's he getting that from? Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. The first iteration statement of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. All right, so that part would have been very familiar. But then... He's saying that, you know, you heard those words, and you've known of those words, but you never got those words. You never understood what God was saying. You never understood what the intent was behind those words. So let me tell you what you weren't getting. Let me tell you what it really means. And that's where we are. And so... We're seeing then Jesus 
turning everything that people knew on their heads. And so the first question that this passage asks us, all right, or the first question that we should ask as we read this, and that gives us the answer to, is how is anger murder? How is anger murder? Because that's what Jesus is saying. He says the Ten Commandments, right, the commandment right there, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. In fact, the judgment is quite clear. Anyone who kills a man, or murders a man, is subject to the judgment of death. But Jesus ups the ante and says, but I tell you, remember, he's not rewriting the law. He's saying that this is what the law meant all along. I tell you the truth. I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You just heard that word a second ago. The judgment of murder was death. The judgment of anger, Jesus saying, is similarly death. All right, let's recast this. Anger. Why do I get the anger passages? It's because I am an expert on the subject and that God knows that I have to change more than anyone else in this particular regard. So let me tell you a couple of illustrations where my anger has manifested in the couple, last couple of weeks. Um, there's the anger that, all right, if you know my son, he is a cute little Dickens. And sometimes I say that with these gritted teeth, you know, just, ah, Ethan. And Ethan, what are some things that, I love holding his head. If you ever want to know what I mean, I invite you to just grab him by the head, put your head on his, and just feel what it feels like. It's great. But you also have to understand that you're taking your own safety into your hands there, because that head is hard far harder than it has any right to be on a three-and-a-half-year-old. His head is all bone, like solid bone. And what he does with that head is he swings it a lot. And so I would say that 11 out of 12 months, I have canker sores inside my mouth because he is giving me a fat lip and just bashing that head against me. And so, never really all that happy. But this week... He just does something a little bit extra. And uh, he's learned the operation of faucets. He loves water. He loves nothing better than water. And he loves, now he's figured out faucets. And so he's always turning on a faucet and playing with the water. He loves getting cups. All of our drinking cups are all over the house. Just, and he just goes like this with water, endlessly. Just, Ethan, what are you doing? So, I kind of got tired of this at a certain point. And so every fourth time or so, I just leave the faucet on and I just keep working. What was I doing? I was writing, preparing the sermon this week. But wouldn't you know, it's that fourth time that always gets you. And the kitchen sink happened to be plugged up with rice. Sounds kind of racially stereotypical, but that's exactly what happened. It was plugged up with rice and... I hear the faucet going for a while, not knowing that the, the sink was plugged up with rice. 
And then at a certain point, a new sound starts emerging. But I'm not really quick on this because I'm exhausted, because I took care of your kids during VBS. And so I'm just kind of sitting there, typing, studying, and then hearing a lot of that other wet sound on top of the normal faucet sound. And then I think, no. And I walk over to the kitchen, which is now flooded. That little kid flooded all the counter space up to the oven, all the floor space to the point where I slipped, you know, just on the tile, and the water happened to get into all the cabinets. And so you can imagine how loving and tender and caring my response to my three-and-a-half-year-old son was at that moment. And so, yeah, I'm not dumb. I'm not going to say anything that gets child services to come over to the house. But, you know, just, Ethan! So I take him, get him out of the kitchen, and then it's just a matter of, all right, taking care of the mess. And I'm just muttering, what kind of just dumb, what kind, what goes through that just hard, empty head? And there you get a picture of this word, raka. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. It's a word that says empty. It's kind of like calling someone a dingbat, all right? Or a, I don't know, just a, I don't know if it's something my family picked up, but in Korean, you know, just when I want to affectionately call, want to call someone not intelligent, I call them a rice cooker, pop tol. Is that, is that just me or is that a common? It's just me, isn't it? All right. Well, anyway, so, but it kind of captures that same, you know, just, it's an empty vessel, all right? And saying, you just don't have the sense that God gave you. You're an idiot, all right? All right, so, you know, there, there's that. I saw a lot of, you know, working with the teens, you know, I saw a lot of this. There was the, uh, you kind of have the disgusted, you know, it, it's kind of that brief wrinkle of the nose, that, you know, it's, it's a K sound, all right? It's sli slightly above the glottal area, but it's not so fully, like, just C, hard K sound. But it's like, so it's like between that, that disgusted breath that, you know what I'm talking about. So, and, um, you know, that, that sound of derision that I'm sure parents know very well. The, what do you know, mom and dad? So there's that. All right. And then let me give you another one. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my family nearly died. So it was Memorial Day Sunday, and we were on uh, Northern Boulevard driving to Bayside. And we were driving, so I was driving. And this driver just banks hard, who's in the left lane, I'm in the right lane, banks really hard, so hard, that a bus that was in the left lane just completely goes immediately over into my lane. So to the point, and he wasn't ahead of me yet. To the point where my quick reflexes just immediately jerk to the right. Quick reflexes do not always mean good reflexes. And as you know, that stretch between 
us and, and uh, Queens, there's a lot of telephone poles. And so I found us going headed directly into and not 50 feet away from a telephone pole. And so immediate correction, but you know how that works. You're on the shoulder at that point. Or two, uh, two wheels on the uh, road and two wheels on the shoulder. So I'm instantly thinking that, you know, just no traction, spinning. We were in our little uh, SUV, which has all-wheel drive, and God be praised, and thank you for all of those engineers. We managed to stay going straight. Lots of gravel getting kicked up everywhere, and just, uh, but we lived, obviously. So, hope it wasn't that dramatic. I mean, you know, just. But, you know, just, we were, it was uh, no joke. Our mortality faced us. And had the car started spinning like I thought it would, then it would have been the midsection of the car, passenger side, that would have wrapped itself around the telephone pole. And so now, I'm just so grateful and saying thank you, God, for just this wonderful thing that he has done, that he has brought life from out of death. And No. I immediately kick the car into whatever gear that I can get it into to go faster. I race past the bus, glaring at the bus driver and giving him what I thought of him. And I catch up to that driver. And I'm trying to make eye contact with that driver. And so, I don't know if the driver ever gives me that eye contact. The driver eventually makes a left right after Wheatley Plaza and then and continue going straight. But heart's racing. I mean, I'm sweating. I mean, you know, it's like I had a workout within the span of 90 seconds. I pray that you never, ever, ever find yourself in that kind of dangerous situation. And even more, I pray that you never, ever find yourself responding the way that I did. Because ultimately, what is my heart? Why did I want to catch up to that driver? I wanted to tell her that I wished that she were dead. I wanted to tell her that her actions were deserving of judgment. Who is she that she should do such a thing? But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That word, you fool, it's a moral insult. If before it's kind of more of a neutral Ah, uh, you're an idiot, whatever. But here, you get more of a, you don't deserve to live kind of just remark. And what are you doing there? What was I doing? At this point, I'm going to start using first person, uh, per, uh, person plural language and say, what are we doing when we are like that? We are passing judgment on other people. And that's how this is murder. 
See, Jesus is raising the bar here and giving the ultimate meaning. That murder comes from a heart of anger. Now, this isn't to say that all anger is murder. In fact, you know, just uh, David Pallison, who just helped me immensely, one of my professors and friends, with this message, writes in an article that God is the angriest person in the Bible, and in fact, God is the angriest person in the universe. But he levels his anger against sin. He loves the sinner and yet hates the sin. Quite often, we are those people who might hate the sin because it inconveniences us. But then we go further to hate the sinner as well. In fact, my uh, one of my good friends used to say, you know, with God it's hate the sin, love the sinner. With Martin it's hate the sin, kill the sinner. So, yeah, not proud of that. Jesus is not talking about just any anger here, but unrighteous anger. The anger of pride, of vanity, of hatred, malice, and revenge. That sort of hatred God has no part of. In fact, David uh, Palestine also said that we are rarely angered by the things that make God angry. But heaven be praised because God is never angered by the petty stuff that makes us angry. And so, not to say that there is no such thing as righteous anger. Right? But, just for instance, if I saw that the driver of that car who nearly got us killed was talking on a cell phone, there is a righteous anger that should stir up in me and I should call the cops on that person for having endangered lives through negligence. But, you know, I didn't have that in my heart, did I? I wanted the person to know and to feel and to tremble at my wrath. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, in your anger do not sin. Why would it say that? I've said this before. Because it's so easy to sin when you're angry. With my son, or with your parents, or loved ones. And we reserve our greatest anger for our loved ones, don't we? What are we saying there? I deserve to be treated better. No, that's a good one. Alright? When you're tired, you're a little more irritable, aren't you? And you kind of say things that you wouldn't normally say in your polite, you know, just well-behaved ways. But when you're tired, and you know that everyone else knows that you're tired, and when you believe that everyone should know why you're tired and give you a wide berth, you drop that and you kind of do a little bit more of that, you know, just uh, unkind language that you wouldn't ordinarily. What are you saying right there? There are standards. There are standards that you meet that other people are not meeting right now. And so they deserve your judgment. They deserve you standing in judgment over them, letting them know that you have been wronged. You 
And Jesus is saying that this heart of judgment, this heart that says that you somehow meet a standard, that you somehow are better than those that you are passing judgment on, is exactly in that DNA of murder. Because every murderer thinks themselves better than those who, murder, who they murder. And every person who is angry thinks themselves at that moment, in that regard, to be better than those that they are angry at. You know, it's that common language. But I would never. And so, we exercise that. And so I, let's see, what was my discipline of Ethan like after the flood? Um, different sort of flood than the Genesis flood. Was, you know, just was my discipline of him out of love and desire for correction? Or was it because I was inconvenienced and now made even more tired by the one who makes me so tired already? And so we do things like the silent treatment, all right, which Paul Tripp says it's a, you know, just, it's a murderous act because what are you doing in that moment? You're saying that person at that moment does not exist to you. Wow. Someone that the Lord God has created, you have, by the power of your will and your attention, you have uncreated. And you see, judgment is passed by those who are not judges and who do not deserve to sit in judgment. Only God is the judge. Only God really stands above You know, we see this right in the very first children, Cain and Abel. Cain, he came up with the idea first, offer something to God. Then Abel saw that it was a good idea and said he wanted to do it too. And Abel's was more pleasing to God. There was something that Cain was reserving, a purity of heart that was not his, that was in Abel. And the Lord asks him, why are you angry? And what does he do with that anger? But he becomes the first murderer. It's right in there, in Scripture. The first siblings, which makes Cain a great-great-great-grand-uncle to all of us. So it runs in the family. And so that is what Jesus is saying as he describes anger as being murder. But then, a second question is asked. How seriously does God regard our anger for each other? Okay, so it makes sense. Don't be angry at God, all right, because what right do we have to be angry at God? We rebelled against him in our sin. But how seriously does he take our anger against each other? And if the first part that Jesus was saying was our judgment of others, the second part is actually regarding other people's judgment of us. What does he say? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. You know, they would bring offerings as part of their religious piety, as their devotion to God. These people were used to coming to the temple and bringing, you know, what God required. But Jesus Christ, God himself is saying, that doesn't cut it. 
There is no us if there isn't you guys together. And Jesus is using the word brothers here. So first we can take that to mean those who are in God, who, those who are in Jesus Christ. So those in the church, John Stott says, there should be no malice between those who are in church. All right, between other churches, there should be no malice. There should be no division if we are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And D.A. Carson also says, among Christian brothers and sisters, anger is to be eliminated. Jesus Christ is saying, leave that there because your religious piety, your legalistic righteousness and obedience will get you nowhere with me. Before God the Father, they are nothing because to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed better than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15.22 And Jesus goes on to say this to Peter when Peter asks, he thinks he's being all good, Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive a brother who sins against me? The same sin, he's saying. Seven times? And Jesus says, you're not getting it. Seventy times seven times. Or rather, there's no end to the forgiveness that you are to display to another in Christ. And so go. And again, remember, this is not like Peter's scenario. You being wronged by someone. But Jesus is talking about when someone has something against you, whether it's actual or perceived. Jesus is saying, take that seriously. If you have angered, if you are the cause of anger in a brother or sister's life, go and seek that brother or sister out. Go and seek them out and be reconciled to them. Do whatever it takes to be reconciled to them. Why? Because at that moment that they are standing in judgment of you, they themselves are also in danger of judgment. Which is what C.S. Lewis kind of gets at when in The Weight of Glory he says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory, their life in Christ, should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. You know, we think that we're big people when someone's wronged us and we go to them and we forgive them. And wow, isn't the Holy Spirit working mightily in me that I am now one who has forgiven and have let go. But how often do we go after those who hold something against us? How often do we take that as seriously as we should? And Jesus Christ is saying, that's the standard. Go. Go and go. Live at peace with all brothers and sisters. You know, this flushes out in my daily life when I hear about murders on television or in the news. And I think, man, we just need much faster executions. We just need to put the fear of death into these people who would actually think that they can murder and get away with it. 
And in my heart, I will be using and justifying, saying, there are all these studies that show that in a country like ours, where there's a huge distance between the crime committed and capital punishment, it provides no deterrence. And so the closer you bring it in time, the more effective it is at just preventing murders and death. But our brother who went to be with the Lord recently, Chuck Colson, didn't have that reaction, did he? He looked at the plight of those in prison, knowing that pain himself, and started prison ministries that he was involved in to the very last day of his life. Or the Bowery Mission, which our youth group is going to this weekend. You know, I'm sure you can tie all kinds of statistics with crime and just poor property values and everything else to those who are homeless and hungry. But the men and women who started up the Bowery, they looked at those who were in need and sought to love them and to give them the love of Christ. In a righteous anger that is of God, Luther says this, is an anger of love, one that wishes no one any evil, one that is friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. And so, to really make it not a truism, not some kind of adage that we just kind of say, oh, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, but to say, I desire to be like my God and to love the sinner who is in need of redemption. You know, and to even, in a practical way then, to try not to hold anything against anyone and to live in such a way that no one can hold things against you except for being one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. That one, Paul, or Peter says that, go ahead, get beat up for that one. You know, so my old pastor said this, that he resolves to think the absolutely best of a person, to not wonder at their motivations. This isn't pie in the sky, oh, thinking rosy things and every, just the best of a person. No. People are sinners. People are bad. People need to be redeemed from the slavery to that sin. But to still love them even when they are sinning against you. Which gets us to the last question. Well, this kind of leads into the last question. How are we truly reconciled to each, to each other? Because if you're hearing my words up to this point, I've set a bar that none of us can reach. And we have said that this is about ultimates. Jesus Christ is setting an ultimate bar that Scripture says we all fall short of. And the wages of falling short of that bar is death. The wages of sin is death. And so the question, how does God rescue us from true judgment? See, that's what this last part is talking about. If you thought that it was talking about, oh, take care of legal arrangements because, you know, it's better to take care of the law before you get to the court. Sure, there's a practical thing there. Settle. All right, better to settle than be taken to court. And the kind of court that's being talked about here is debtor's prison. And back then, if you didn't have the money to pay your debts, you were locked away in prison until all of it was paid off. 
which is a little bit ridiculous because how do you earn any money to pay off that debt? So basically, you're there and you rot. But the language that Jesus is using here, which a brother thankfully confirmed with Matthew Henry, because I was the only person that I could find. Oh, sorry, rant. The language that's being used here is of the adversary, with a capital T, capital A, the enemy. You know, Satan does have a bone to pick with us. He does have leverage on us. Like the white witch in the Chronicle, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. She had a claim to Edmund. Edmund broke the, the land's law, Narnia's law, and he deserved to die. We have broken God's law. We deserve to die. And so, this accuser gets to take us to court. And if we get there with nothing changed, the judge can pass sentence on us. And that sentence is the judgment of death. And that's what is being talked about. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. It's very similar to language that Jesus uses of the kingdom. And when people are tossed out of the kingdom, there's much weeping and gnashing of teeth. But we know that this is not how Jesus ends it. See, we can't do anything to change our fate. We can't do anything to right our wrongs. We can't do anything to be reconciled with each other, much less God. But Jesus Christ can. And he did. He is the one who could sit as judge over us and yet came down to be one of us. And then he is the one that could actually be in front of the judge and be pronounced innocent. And yet for our sake, he allowed himself to be declared guilty. And in this ministry of reconciliation, Jesus Christ in his body and blood reconciled us to God and us to each other. And so he's saying, Jesus is saying right here with this antithesis, you have a way out. There is a way to settle out of court on this one someone else can take your place. I, I will go and the accuser will lay the charges against me and I will let them stick. And the judge will declare me guilty and hand me over to death and I will die. Hope in me and you will live. Hope in me, you will have life. And that is what all the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus Christ is saying, there is life in me. I am the peacemaker. I am the one who mourned. I am all of this. I am the fulfillment of the law. And I am the one who was judged for your sins that you are guilty for. And so... You know, we can start off, and a great many people have started off their Christian lives with fear of God's judgment. Martin Luther lived in fear of God's judgment, asking, what can I do to be saved? Where can I find comfort? Which is what the Heidelberg Catechism 
Question two that we recited today talked about. Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon in the Great Awakening in New England was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this, during this two-hour sermon, people fell down on the floor asking, what must I do to be saved? Because they were fearful of the floor opening up underneath them and them dropping straight to hell because they were convicted of their sins. But Luther and Edwards found the hope that Jesus Christ speaks of here. He is the truth, the way, and the life. He is the way to the Father, the only way to the Father. Trust in Him. And then, leave this life of judgment. Because what you say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, you're saying that you love how Jesus Christ paid for your debts more than any debt that anyone owes you. The second that you say that someone is deserving of your anger and your wrath, you're saying that that is worth more than what Jesus Christ endured on the cross for you. Is that what you're saying? I don't want that to be what I'm saying. And so you see that Jesus Christ, in one sense, lets us off the hook. The ultimate bar He has passed by dying for us. And so out of love for Him, will we now live the life that Jesus lived because of how Jesus died for us? You know, the passage you see isn't first about being loving to other people, but seeing how short we fall of that standard. But it is about how Jesus Christ met and exceeded that standard beyond our wildest hopes and imaginings. And so let us put our trust in Him. Please bow your heads as I pray, as the elders come forward, and, and uh, as we enter into our time of communion. Father in heaven, it is through the blood shed and the body broken of our Lord Jesus Christ that we stand and we have any hope at all. And it is the only place that we want to stand because it is the only place that we can find any hope. There is no hope outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we remember Jesus Christ in His body and His blood with the cup and the bread, just cement this truth on our hearts so that we will commit to becoming less angry, less murderous people because we see that the love that Jesus Christ has shown, that we give up our rights, that we give up our debts as we see that Jesus Christ has paid for our debts. Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for this song.